just joy to be with you this morning. I'd like to open the Word of God with you. As you turn with me to Psalm 113. Psalm 113. It's where the Lord has us this morning. Is a special delight uh, for me to have my mother here with us uh, over this next week, and most of you have met her already, but I wanted to take a moment to say a special uh, word of welcome to her and just thank her for being here and uh, the effort that was made there. Psalm 113. Let us hear the word of God from verse 1 of Psalm 113. Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory Above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God. Who dwelleth on high. Who humbleth himself. To behold the things that are in heaven. And in the earth. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust. And lifteth the needy. Out of the dunghill. That he may set him with princes. Even with the princes of his people. He maketh a barren womb, woman, to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. Amen. Trust the Lord to bless that word to our hearts, even just from the reading of it. Let us pray briefly and ask one last time for his help. Our Father, we have come to this solemn occasion where thy word has been opened and read again in our hearing, and we pray, O Lord, that Thou will give us help. O Lord, help us to meditate on this psalm. Uh, call our affections out after Thee, Lord. Grow us in our love, and grow us in our desire to praise Thy holy and wonderful name. O Lord, fill me with Thy Holy Spirit. Grant me help as I seek to set forth Christ, as I seek to set forth the God of glory. And help us all, O Lord, to behold the God of glory this morning. For we do ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are taking the whole psalm for our meditation this morning. Uh, psalm 113. And the, just a little bit of the context of this psalm. It's interesting to note this week in studying that uh, Psalm 113 through 118 are considered uh, especially psalms for praising, psalms of praise. They, they all begin or have an emphasis of the, the word hallel, which is the word for praise uh, in all of them. And they traditionally, uh, the occasion for singing them would have been at the feasts, the various feasts of Israel, and most notably, uh, according to tradition, uh, the Passover, that this would have been sung then. And... No doubt you can see there the emphasis would have been on the redeeming work of God and the matter of praise that that would bring to the people. And so they would 
again, according to tradition, come to these psalms and sing them, especially in light of the redemptive work of God when he brought his people out of bondage in Egypt. And even, even just there, before we really dig into this message, you can already see why this psalm is so relevant for us. If those who had been brought out of Egypt could sing this and praise the Lord, then how much more we who know the spiritual reality of that redemption, having been brought out of the world of bondage. Note also that this is a missional psalm. We'll see more of that uh, as we get in to the psalm. But there is a focus uh, upon the mission of the church in this psalm. And this psalm really calls us to praise or the word could be boast in or of God. That is what it's calling us to. It's calling us to brag on the Lord for who he is and what he is doing and what he will do. And the psalmist is is on a mission from beginning to end. He begins, praise ye the Lord. He ends with praise ye the Lord. He is on a mission. His heart is bursting with praise to the Lord. His heart is overflowing with praise. And this is where he wants you, the reader, to be. That's why he begins and ends this way. He he wants your heart to be where his heart is, overflowing and abundant with praise to God. And I would ask, is that where you are this morning? Is that where you are? Is your heart overflowing with praise to the goodness of God and the works that he's done? If it is not where you are, the psalmist is on a mission to get you there. And if it is where you are, if your heart is already overwhelming with the praises of God, the psalmist will help you express that praise. And so I want us to meditate on this psalm and consider it as a compelling call to praise the Lord. A compelling call to praise the Lord. And I want us to note first, as we consider the first number of verses, the requirement of praising the Lord. The requirement of praising the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. That is where he begins. This word praise uh, is used several times in your Bible. It, It denotes the idea of worship, adoration, as we've already noted, boasting in or of. But it also can be used to, as a word that denotes celebration or commending, as if you were commending the Lord to others or, or just celebrating who He is. There is an excitement in this word. And as we've already somewhat noted, this psalm being sung in light of redemption, you can already begin to see where the psalmist is going. Praise ye the Lord. Worship Him in light of what He's done. The first thing I want us to see here as we think about the requirement of praising the Lord is that this praise is required from all His servants. This praise is required from all His servants. Because that's the question. Who is He calling upon? Well, He begins, Praise ye the Lord. Praise O ye servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. So this is required from all his servants. And then that word servant, it is 
the word that you see in your Bible uh, very often. It's the word for slave, the word that denotes ownership. And he says, praise ye, and then he continues, O ye servants. He is speaking to those who are owned by the Lord, those who are engaged in serving the Lord. And as we think about that, I want you to think about several things when we see that word servants, what it, what it denotes to us, what it communicates. And these are those whom the Lord has purchased to himself. That is who they are. O ye servants of the Lord. They are those whom he has purchased. As we you turn over your page, you'll see in Psalm 116 verse 16, uh, this same uh, word used there. O Lord, truly I am thy servant. I am thy servant and the son of thine handmaid. Thou hast loosed my bonds. And as we think about that, the Lord purchasing these servants, uh, that can be an idea that is off-putting to people today to, to call them slaves. And, and yet the Apostle Paul uh, thought of himself and considered himself the slave of God. And yet when we think about that, uh, when we think about being enslaved to God, slavery to God is the greatest freedom that there can be. And that is the irony of it. When you're enslaved to God, it is the greatest freedom. In Psalm 116, he says, He has loosed my bonds. These are people that are, these, these subjects here, these servants, they have been brought out of slavery to the worst of taskmasters. They've been brought out of slavery to sin. They've been brought, as we said, out of Egypt, where their bondage was great, their affliction was sore. They were in misery. And the Lord has brought them out. And the Lord has made them His own servants. And they are joyous to be His servants because He is the perfect owner. He is the perfect, sinless owner of His people. And as we think about this praise here, you, you see already as you think about yourself being the servant of God, being purchased, being His possession, and all that that brings with it. Praise must bubble up in your heart for what the Lord has brought you out of and what He has brought you into. They are those whom He has purchased, but also they are those whom He has pardoned they are those whom he has pardoned. Why, why do these servants uh, seem to have this excitement? Why does the psalmist have this excitement to praise the Lord and to call upon the servants of the Lord? Because they are pardoned. He's purchased them and he's pardoned them. As we read in Psalm 103, the glorious statements here. Psalm 103 verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. Purchased people and pardoned people. And as they are pardoned, 
They then therefore serve the Lord out of love and gratitude, not out of some slavish fear or bondage. They serve Him out of love and gratitude. As Jesus said in John 14, 50, If ye love me, you'll keep my commandments. They are those whom He has purchased, those whom He has pardoned. They are those whom He protects and provides righteousness for. This word servant occurs also in the prophecy of Isaiah. In Isaiah 54, verse 17, we have this same word referring to God's servants. And we read there in Isaiah 54, 17, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. There are purchased people, a pardoned people, and there are protected people whose righteousness has been provided by God. Their righteousness is of me. And so, as we think about this, these people who are to be praising the Lord, they're His servants. They're people who've been purchased, pardoned, they're protected, and they have the Lord's righteousness. Do you know these blessings this morning? Do you know the righteousness of God being granted to you so that you are now accepted by Him? Do you know Him purchasing you, bringing you out of darkness and into light and placed into His kingdom to be in His service? If you know these blessings, then surely it is not hard for me to convince you that praise should be the cry of your heart. That as you look upon what the Lord has made you, His servant, His slave, that you would, like the psalmist, have a heart bursting forth to praise His name. So this praise is required from all His servants. But also, as we think about the requirement of praising the Lord, this praise is required at all times. This praise is required at all times. Verse 2, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From this time forth and forevermore. The word blessed there, it has a similar idea in the context of the word praise, though slightly nuanced. It has the idea of humble worship and adoration. And the psalmist is saying that the, the Lord's name should be blessed from this time forth and forevermore. From this time forth. Well, what, what time is being referred to? Well, I suggest to you it's possible, in light of the context of the psalm, that it is possibly referring to the time when the Lord redeemed you. From the time where the Lord brought you out of Egypt, brought you out of bondage to your sin. And the psalmist is saying, from this time forth, from the time where God redeemed my soul, I will praise Him from this time and forevermore. I say that is, that is possible based on the context of the psalm. But even if that was not the case, even just looking at the, the words themselves from this time, uh, it, it is required presently. That's what we see there, that this praise is required at all times. The psalmist says it is required presently from this time. 
And, and that is an all-inclusive statement. It is saying that whatever time it is, and whatever is going on during that time, the Lord is to be praised. And so it is in light of, or regardless of, whatever is occurring at that time. It is in light of or regardless of failures or successes in the work of God. Triumphs or trials in the life of His people. Blessings or burdens that come to us at various times. It is praise that is to be offered at all times, presently. And you and I both know that that is easier said than done. That it is easy to say the Lord should be praised at all times. But there are various times that come into the lives of the people of God where it is difficult. It's difficult to see the goodness of God. It's difficult to see how He's using a certain situation or circumstance or trial for my good and His glory. And it becomes difficult to praise. And yet, by God's grace, it is what we are called to at all times. Because He, though our circumstances change, His goodness never changes. He is always good. No matter what may be going on around us, He is good and He is therefore to be praised. And so... Note here that there is a resolve in this praise. That the psalmist is, is resolved to praise Him at all times. He says, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. He, he is resolving that though whatever it may be going on that would seek to distract Him from praising the Lord or keep Him from praising the Lord, He is resolved to praise Him who is worthy of all praise. It is like the hymn writer wrote, I will praise Him. There is a resolve to praise Him. But it is required presently, the psalmist tells us from this time, it is required eternally. It is eternally required. From this time forth and forevermore, the psalmist says. In other words, it is praise that, that begins, right? It begins and then is to be constant and persevering through all the times and into eternity. And as we think about that, we, we know it is a purchased praise that Christ has purchased His people, purchased their souls, and as He has purchased them, He has purchased their praise. And He is worthy, therefore. And He has earned an eternity of praise from this time forth and forevermore. But notice with me also in the requirement of this praise that it is required at all times, but this praise is required from all places. This praise is required from all places. 
in verse 3. He says, From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. And, and that could be possibly taken to refer to time uh, all the day long. It could be that way. Uh, but I would suggest to you that there is more in the psalmist's uh, mind than that. That it is including more than a mere reference to time, but is referring to geography. It's referring to places. The psalmist says it is from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. In other words, it is required from the place where the sun rises to the place where the sun sets. It is required from all the places upon which the sun shines while it is risen. In other words, it is required from all over the earth. And here we come into the psalmist's heart of his missional focus that I referred to in the introduction. As we come here, there is a zeal in the psalmist and a, a missional focus. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. There is zeal in him for this to be the case. The psalmist is saying this should be. The, the Lord's name should be praised all over the earth. But he's not only saying this should be and recognizing that it isn't the current case. That there are places in the world where the Lord's name is not being praised by his redeemed people. And so the psalmist is saying, no, this, this shouldn't be. The Lord's name should be praised there, everywhere. And so he's not just saying it should be, but also he's saying this will be. Why do I say that? He has this missional focus. Why do I say that he's saying it will be the case? Well, I say that because of what we see the prophet Malachi writing in Malachi 1 verse 11. Listen to the words of Malachi and you will see the prophetic promise that is contained in this psalm. Malachi 1.11 for from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. And so, can you, can you enter into the heart of the psalmist here with me? And can you stir up your soul to desire the praise of God from the ends of the earth to be offered to Him by the heathen who maybe today blaspheme His name, who will tomorrow or in the future be brought to praise His name. That is the heart of the psalmist here. And as it is His heart there should therefore be the same zeal in our hearts as we read this. That as you read that verse, you hear the Lord calling you. As no doubt, the psalmist understood to be the means in the Lord's hands to extend His praise across the earth. There is assurance in his statement. And he is, he is willing 
to be a means in the Lord's hands. From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be, should be, and will be praised. So that is the requirement of praise. The requirement of praising the Lord. But I want you to see secondly, because as it has been general in the first part of the psalm, it begins to become more specific as we think about praising the Lord. So there's the requirement of praising the Lord. And secondly, I want you to see the reasons for praising the Lord. He starts off general and he gets specific as we come into verse 4. And here we want to see the reasons for praising the Lord. The first here is that the Lord is to be praised due to his character. Due to his character. He has alluded to this in the other verses in 1 through 3. You can see that in the references to the name of the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And then in verse 3, the Lord's name is to be praised. You have three references to the name of the Lord. And I suggest to you here that it is not necessarily a specific name as we think about all the names of God, but rather they are collectively pointing you to the character of the Lord as His name communicates His reputation. And so this becomes matter for praise for the psalmist as he meditates on the name of the Lord. Because the Lord's name represents who He is, and the Lord's name represents what He has done. And any time we see that emphasis in the Word of God, the name of the Lord, your mind should be drawn to the definition of the Lord's name, which we're given in Exodus 34, where Moses asked to see God's glory. Lord, show me thy glory in chapter 33. And then we come to Exodus 34, and we read, beginning in verse 5, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. He proclaimed the name. And all of this is encompassed in his name, beginning in verse 6. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And what did Moses do? Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. This praise, the Lord is to be praised due to His character. And this is who He is. There is so much here to consider and to meditate on. But note the emphasis on the attributes. That's what I want us to see there. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful. His very name, Jehovah, communicates His unchanging nature and His covenant-keeping character. But also, He's merciful. The mercifulness of God. The graciousness of God. The long-suffering of God. His goodness and His truth. He keeps mercy, forgives iniquity. He's just and holy. And all these things, the psalmist is setting before you when he denotes to you the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord. And he is giving you matter for praise. His name represents who he is. And any time we think about who God is, 
if we rightly think upon him, our hearts should be drawn to praise his name. But as I also said, his name represents what he has done. And for that, if you just turn back a few pages in another part of Psalm 103, we think about what the Lord has done and what the Lord hasn't done. We, we get matter for praise. In Psalm 103, verse 10, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. For He knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. Who the Lord is and what the Lord has done. The psalmist sets that before you as matter for praise. So the Lord is to be praised due to His character. But also the Lord is to be praised due to His position. The Lord is to be praised due to His position. Note verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Note here the position of God. The first thing we're pointed to is His sovereignty. As I said, we get more specific as the psalmist goes on. The Lord is high above all nations. Exalted above all nations. In other words, He's over all nations. He is in control of every nation. He is the greatest power that there is or ever will be. He is high above all nations. What, are, what is the psalmist drawing our attention to there? What is he saying to us? Other than that the greatest rulers in history, the greatest ones you can think of, the most mightiest of men, are barely a drop in the bucket of who God is and in His control. He makes the Nebuchadnezzar's to go out into a field and behave like a wild beast. So the greatest ruler you can think of today, the one, even, even the best of them, that you might think of, of, of praising, even for their good efforts, their conservative politics or whatever, and yet they're nothing in comparison to the Lord because He not only is supreme over them all, He's the perfect ruler. He rules the universe and never makes a mistake. And as He is that, as He does that, He is worthy of all of our praise. But not only is He sovereign over all, the Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. And there we are pointed to the transcendence of God. Not only is He over all in His sovereignty, but He is above all. He's transcendent. He is, he is removed from us to a point where He is incomprehensible. That's really what we're being pointed to there, that the Lord's glory 
exceeds that of any creature. And so the most beautiful things that you look upon in the earth, the most weighty things that you look upon in the earth, he specifically draws out the heavens. Glory, his glory is above the heavens. Think of that. Think of the most beautiful things, the most wondrous things that you see in creation, in the universe, as you look out into the stars of the night. You look through a telescope, some of the things that men have discovered, the sights that we behold through these inventions that they've made, and yet none of them, none of them, can barely compare at all to what glory there is in the Lord our God. They merely reflect a portion of His glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. He is transcendent. And therefore, as He is transcendent, He exceeds the glory of any creature and He's beyond the comprehension of any creature. As Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 57, 15, He's the high and the lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. Can you even wrap your mind around that? The high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. He dwells outside of time. In the vast expanse of the universe, God is everywhere. And He's above it all. Not limited by anything or anyone, ever. And as He is that, the psalmist draws our affections to behold Him and to praise Him. So the Lord is to be praised due to His position as well. But also see that the Lord is to be praised due to His condescension in general. Due to His condescension in general. As we just finished thinking about the transcendence of God and His sovereignty over all and the fact that He's removed from all and above all, His glory is above the heavens. Now think about what verse 5 and 6 say. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? This high and lofty one who inhabits eternity condescends to all of his creatures. Note here that he has the ability to condescend. Who is like unto the Lord our God? who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself. In other words, there's no one like him. There's no other God like this God. Who is like unto him? In other words, he's not like the false gods of the pagan world that are worthless. And you see just over your page probably Psalm 115. And what the Lord points out there regarding false gods. He says in verse 3, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. In other words, they're nothing. They don't have any power to do anything. They certainly don't have the ability to condescend to the needs of their worshipers. And yet our God, 
He is one who has the ability to condescend and is willing to condescend and does condescend to His creation. And He, condes- he condescends to all His creatures. And that's what the psalmist is drawing us to behold. Behold! The, the Lord beholds the things that are in the heaven and the earth. In other words, he, he takes an interest in and is vitally involved with the affairs of this world. He beholds them. He condescends to be involved with. And this, this points to us, this points us to this whole subject of, of common grace. And, and you see it, the Lord's involvement in this world. What are we told in Hebrews 1.3? That He upholds all things by the word of His power. He causes rain to come upon the just and the unjust. What are we told to pray for in the Lord's Prayer for daily bread? When you wake up in the morning and there's food, think about all the factors that come into play in this world in order for you to have that food. And God's involved in all of it. There's not one thing that goes on that He is not aware of or involved with. And this is matter for praise. That even as you, you begin your day, maybe, maybe you're, you're waking up and, and uh, there are various things going on that would distract you and, and, and cause you not to be grateful for the things that the Lord has given, but just, just think about it. The Lord humbles Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and are in the earth. That's true with food and clothing and all the, those things. But just think about how the Lord has, has beheld the earth and given the grace to man to make the inventions that He's made. Medicine, the internet, all these things that, that God is over and that he, he allows to be invented for the good of all creation and especially of His people. And in that we see His condescension. He humbleth Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. And therefore, we praise Him and marvel at His condescension. So the Lord is to be praised due to His condescension in general. But the Lord is to be praised due to His condescension in the gospel. That is the ultimate display of His condescension. He is to be praised due to His condescension in the Gospel. We see this in several things, but beginning at verse 7. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill, that He may set him with princes, even with the princes of His people. He maketh the barren woman to keep house, and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. How do we see the Lord's condescension in the gospel here? Well, one thing as we continue to think about his condescension from verse 6, he humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. What do we see God doing in the earth that is the, the most glorious display of his condescension, the most involved that he could be in the world? We see Him sending the Son of God into the world. We see the Son being sent in order to save His people. 
What condescension that the infinite Son, and, and think about that, the infinite Son, the limitless Son, God Himself, without limitation, without any discomfort, He who dwells in eternity in the glory of His kingdom, the infinite Son took on finite flesh, took on a human nature, entered into this world and subjected Himself to the conditions of this world. Subjected Himself in His humanity to weariness, to fatigue, to all the infirmities that we're told He was faced with and all the temptations that He was faced faced with in his humanity, all the testings that came upon him. And he did all of that to save your soul. What condescension that he would come and be involved with this world to the point of taking on flesh. So it's his condescension in the gospel is seen in the Son that was sent. But also, it is seen in the sinners that He saves. It is seen in the sinners that He saves. Verse 7, He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill. The sinners that He saves. You Think about this picture we're given here. You could... You could look at these two pictures that we're going to look at and you can see there's, there's a natural way to look at them. The Lord certainly uh, has common grace uh, to the poor and the needy and the barren woman. But I want us to think about them with their ultimate significance as we see throughout the rest of Scripture what the Lord's really interested in when He brings up these subjects of the poor and the needy. And He is referring to sinners. The sinners that He saves. We think about that word poor. It, 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 it's communicating those who have nothing. The poor and the needy. The poor, those who have nothing. The needy, those who need everything. The poor who have nothing and those who need everything. The needy. And what does He do with them? He raiseth the poor out of the dust. The word for dust there is the same word that you see in Genesis 3 regarding the fall of man and the curse that was brought upon man. So he, he raiseth up the poor out of the dust. He raiseth them up out of the place of death. And what does he do with the needy? He lifteth the needy out of the dunghill. The dunghill being the place of filth, the place of sin. And he, what does He do when He raises them up? He brings them out of the place of death and He lifts them, lifts them out of the dunghill. He brings them out and He brings them up. He raises them and exalts them. What we're being pointed to in verse 7 is the state of desolation of the sinner. That they're poor and they're needy. They have nothing. They need everything. They have no righteousness before God in and of themselves. And they need the Lord to raise them up out of the place of death and the place of the filth of sin. 
And next, in verse 8, we see him denoting their state of exaltation. Not only does he bring them out and up out of sin, but he takes them even further. That he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. He takes lost sinners in their darkness and dismal sin. He takes you and he takes me and he takes us from absolute poverty, absolute spiritual poverty, and he brings us to the most glorious wealth in Jesus Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Think about that. Think of where you were and what you lacked. And now think of where you are in Christ and what God has supplied. Riches beyond your wildest imaginations. Riches beyond your comprehension. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And eternity's worth of riches in Him. Unperishable riches in Him. When you read this, you think of Abraham. The Lord called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. Just a no one, a nobody. He brings him, he saves him, bestows riches upon him, enters into covenant with him, and uses him to be a means in the scheme of redemption. And the Lord, to certain degrees, does that with every sinner. Brings us out of the world, into Christ, into his kingdom, to be a means, an instrument in the advance of his cause. The words of Psalm 40, verse 17. Can you say this this morning? I am poor and I am needy, yet the Lord thinketh, considers, takes me into consideration. The Lord thinketh upon me. So this is seen in the sinners that he saves. His, his condescension in the gospel. The sinners that he saves. The last thing here I want you to see is that it's seen in the means that he uses. And that is verse 9. The means that he uses. He maketh the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. He maketh the barren woman to keep house to be a joyful mother of children. I want to just develop this with you for a moment. There's a, there's a natural picture here, of course. The barren woman uh, to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. And, and, and you can definitely see uh, the blessing of God upon people in that way, even in terms of His common grace. And you see that. We see it with Sarah, Rebecca, and Hannah. And yet they're all uh, instruments, in the, again, in the scheme of redemption and the Lord preserving His seed. 
But I want us to think about this natural picture, and then I want us to see a spiritual parallel here in, with this verse. The natural picture. We see barren. What does barren communicate? Barren communicates destitute of life. Destitute of life. He maketh the barren woman to keep house. And, and what he's referring to there is that's the labor that comes with children. He, he makes this barren woman who, who doesn't have the need to keep house in the same measure to keep house. And he makes her a joyful mother of children. In other words, she's happy to labor because of what the need of labor signifies. It signifies there's children. And as most of us here know, that when there are few children or little children, there's not as much mess to have to deal with. That's what we're being pointed to. He maketh the barren woman to keep house to be a joyful mother of children. Well, what's the spiritual parallel I want to draw here? I would suggest to you, and I'll show you from another passage as well, to, valid, to verify this spiritual parallel, that the church can go through seasons of barrenness. Okay? Follow me here. The church can go through seasons of barrenness. And in other words, she doesn't have as many children in the gospel. Okay? And the barren woman, the Lord makes to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. And so though the church can go through seasons of barrenness, the promise of God is that He maketh the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. And, and as you think about that, as the Lord brings in lost sinners there becomes more work to do. There, there is more labor involved in keeping the house. And yet there is joy because there is life. And these children have been brought in and raised up by the Lord. And the reason I suggest that to you is because of what we see in Isaiah 54. Turn over to Isaiah 54 and we'll, we'll end here. But these are the means that He uses he, he takes wretched, saved sinners and uses them to win wretched, lost sinners. Let's read Isaiah 54 in light of what we read in Psalm 113.9. Right on the end of Isaiah 53, after the work of Christ has been put before us, Isaiah 54.1, Sing, O barren! Thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, Thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Do you see the, the spiritual picture here? The Lord speaking to His church, His Old Testament church specifically. And He is saying to them, Sing, O barren! Because they were at this time, if you take that interpretation of this prophecy that is referring to the time of captivity or time following, that they were in a state of barrenness. There, there was a barren state and stage of the church during that time, a small number. There, there wasn't this, the growth. They weren't in the height of what they had before. 
And that's why he says more of the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife. That's the picture there. The Lord was going to give them more children in their lowest state after the captivity than in their highest state before the captivity. And he says to them, he calls them barren. And I want you to see here the promise of God. And, and I, I want us to apply that promise to his church today. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing. Why break forth into singing? He's called them barren. What, what causes there to break forth into singing? Verse 3, For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles. So there's a, this holy anticipation that he's driving them to. I want you to sing forth. I want you to break forth into singing because you're going to break forth. You're not going to be able to contain. You're not going to be able to enlarge your tents enough to take in the harvest of souls that He's going to bring in when He brings the Gentiles. And He calls them, therefore, to praise in anticipation of what He's going to do. Note what He tells them to do. The preparation. This is all preparation for what He promises to do. Enlarge the place of thy tent. Stretch forth. Lengthen thy cords. Strengthen thy stakes. You're going to break forth. I wanted us to see that because of the light that it casts on the condescension of God in Psalm 113.9. He maketh the barren woman to keep house to be a joyful mother of children. The Lord has impressed that upon me this week so much. It has been on my mind and my heart. And I want to leave this with you, that you will leave this place today praising the Lord, having much matter for praise from this psalm, but also that you will leave here with matter for prayer to God. That it would be for all of His church, not just this congregation specifically, even though we are included, but all of His blood-bought people, that He will make the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. May the resolve of each of our hearts as we leave this place at all times throughout our years to praise Him. May it be to praise Him. And may we call each of us, call each other to praise Him as the psalmist does here. He calls us to praise the Lord for what He's done, what He's doing, and praise His name, what He will do. Amen. Praise ye the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give Thee thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ for Thy Word. We do bless Thee for Thy condescension in the Gospel. Lord, we are we're not humbled enough by Your mercy and Your grace. Give us a greater sight, a greater vision to behold of Your glory and Your mercies to us and how You have saved our souls. 
and how you take us and use us to win others to Christ. Lord, help us to leave this place praising your name all the day long from this time forth and forevermore. Lord, we know not what a day may bring forth, but whatever thy people will face in the coming week, we ask thee, O God, give us the grace. Give us the grace to praise your name through it all. O oh Lord, and that we would see people as a, as a means of praise to the Lord. That we would see lost sinners and, and we would be jealous for their praise of the Lord. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, Lord, help us. Help us. Oh God, make the barren woman to keep house, we pray. May we see the salvation of souls in mighty numbers in these days that thy praise may be in all the earth. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.